Chapter 6 Put It in the Vault As the islanders' fish savings increased, storage became an issue. People had traditionally kept fish in their huts, but that proved too inefficient and even dangerous. Fish filters became a big problem. And while the islanders would have liked to use their excess savings to grow through loans and investments, most individual savers had neither the time nor the training to judge the merits of business propositions offered to them. Sensing a solid business opportunity, an islander named Max Goodbank decided to launch a revolutionary service. After guarding his own fish for years, Max knew there had to be a better way to store his savings. And after seeing so many of his neighbors get hoodwinked by slick fish borrowers, he also knew that most people needed help in deciding how their savings should be lent. With these thoughts in mind, he built a large, climate-controlled facility, staffed by the toughest galoots on the island. The new bank, as it was called, would safely store the island's collective fish savings and consequently solve the theft problem. But that was just the beginning. Being a true entrepreneur, Max knew that if all he did was charge a storage fee, his profit potential would be limited. He understood the value of savings, and he knew he could do a better job at lending than a typical islander. As a top-notch mathematician, Max was particularly good at evaluating business plans and structuring equitable loans. With the fish earned from the loans of his neighbor's fish, he would pay interest to depositors and wages to his goons. He would keep the leftover profit for himself. The good bank savings and loan was born. Just like Abel and Duffy, Max initially sought to benefit his own pocketbook. But to do so, he helped solve the island's thorny issues of savings, credit, and theft. Now, when the Abels of the island under-consumed, they delegate their investment responsibility to Good Bank by depositing their fish in his bank. Those requiring loans in order to finance capital projects need only see Mr. Good Bank rather than anyone who seemed to be sitting on a tidy pile of fish. For the scheme to work, Max had to keep a number of balls in the air at once. First, he had to keep his loan business profitable, which meant he had to carefully screen borrowers, scrupulously collect interest, and foreclose on collateral when loans failed. Second, he had to keep his depositors happy through regular interest payments. Lastly, he had to attract more borrowers to keep the cycle running. If he failed, he would be out of a job, and his investment would be wasted. Naturally, with his ability to specialize in the tasks associated with efficient and profitable lending, Max became the island's foremost expert on fish economics. And whereas less specialized lenders tended to be influenced by factors such as personal history, family relationship, and emotion, with Good Bank, it all boiled down to dollars and cents or rather, fins and scales. Interest Rates With his personal well-being so intertwined with the success of the bank, Max was in an ideal position to determine the best interest rates to pay depositors and to charge borrowers. On the lending side, he offered the lowest interest rates to the most secure borrowers, those with the highest ability to repay the loans. For dicier borrowers, he charged a higher rate to compensate for the added risk. These loan rates 
then determined how much interest the bank could pay depositors, who received payments on a similarly sliding scale. Longer-held deposits lowered the bank's risk of a fish shortage. Accordingly, higher interest payments were offered to those willing to leave their fish on deposit for a while. People who could not commit to a longer time frame got lower rates. Although Good Bank administered these rates, the entire interest rate system itself fluctuated according to market conditions that were largely beyond Good Bank's control. Sometimes, big gains in productivity made the island's savings swell. When the vault was filled to the rafters with fish, the bank would be willing to drop the rates charged on loans. That was because the losses would be easier to bear in relative terms, and the healthy economy that produced the savings in the first place would provide a fertile environment for new businesses. With little need to attract new savings, and with lower rates charged to borrowers, such an environment would also lead to lower payments to depositors, which would discourage savings. But when savings dipped, which is dangerous for an economy, opposite forces would come into play that would tend to encourage savings, thereby replenishing bank coffers. For instance, when fish were few, good bank would have to be extra careful with loans. With thin reserves, loan defaults could be critical. In order to compensate for the increased relative risk, Max would charge higher rates to borrowers and offered higher rates to depositors in order to encourage more savings. Higher interest rates would discourage borrowing and slow business growth. But the higher rates would also encourage savings. Eventually, coffers would build up again and rates would then start to drop. In addition, a lower savings rate indicated a preference for immediate consumption. As a result, long-term capital investments designed to provide goods for future consumption would be discouraged. This cyclical interest rate mechanism, firmly regulated by the desire to maximize the returns on the bank's deposits, the fear of losing capital on risky ventures, and individual time preference for consumption, produced a rate of interest that would stabilize the market. Most importantly, the safety and convenience of the bank encouraged people to save. Deferring consumption to a later date provided financing for capital projects that would increase future production and raise living standards. Under Mr. Goodbank's wise and conservative care, the island savings and commerce continued to grow. High-risk investment Given his need to continually pay interest to his depositors, Mr. Goodbank tended to shy away from loans that had a high probability of default. He refused to risk the islander's savings on vacation loans, consumption loans, or any other fish-in-the-dish ideas that promised the moon but could offer no realistic assumptions about potential success. But some savers wanted to take greater risks for greater rewards. Occasionally, potential breakthrough projects came along that were very enticing, but ultimately just too risky for the bank to fund. Sling Flight Airways pitched an idea that could revolutionize inter-island travel. Using giant slingshots and nets, the company proposed to launch islanders from one island to the next. But Good Bank, true to form, didn't bite on it. But that didn't mean the backers of Sling Flight were out of options. A new investment pool had arrived on the scene, run by the flamboyant fish tycoon Manny Fund. Manny took in fish from savers who were not content with the modest returns paid by Good Bank. With these fish, he rolled the dice on high-profile projects. 
Some of the projects he funded worked out, like the Paradise Beverage Company that sold cool tropical drinks in kiosks all over the island. Others did not, like the Blub Marine Underwater Submarine Tour Company. Somehow, the problems with the screen doors should have been anticipated. So while Good Bank continued to finance capital growth through conservative forms of investment, Manny Fund became the choice for the risk takers. Takeaway In addition to distorting the credit market by passing laws that favor certain types of loans and certain types of borrowers, governments also influence the flow of credit in a more fundamental manner through its control of interest rates. For almost 100 years, the Federal Reserve, in theory a private bank, but in practice an extension of the Treasury Department, has set the base level of interest rates upon which the entire rate structure rests. By setting its federal funds rate higher or lower, the Fed, as the bank is known, does not dictate the particular rate any bank offers for every loan, but it does move the entire market up or down. Banks will always charge a higher rate to the public than they pay the Fed to borrow money. So when the Fed raises or lowers its rates, businesses and individuals will pay more or less to borrow. The Fed was given this authority in order to keep the economy running smoothly in good times and bad. The theory goes that the collective wisdom of Fed economists can help keep the economy on track by determining the optimal interest rate for any particular moment in time. For instance, the Fed tries to boost the struggling economy by lowering interest rates to the point where businesses and consumers would be more inclined to borrow. In very good times, when overconfidence often leads to foolishness, the Fed is supposed to do the opposite and raise rates so that people will think twice about taking out loans. This system has two massive flaws. First, it assumes that a small group of people at the Fed can make better decisions than millions of people making independent decisions, also known as the marketplace, about the proper level of interest rates. But the Fed has no skin in the game, as the saying goes. It does not generate the savings and will not suffer if loans go bad. The people save the money, and the bank's profits depend on its wise stewardship. Without this connection, lending is inherently inefficient. Second, the Fed's decisions are always determined by political, rather than economic considerations. As low rates tend to make the economy appear better on the surface, push down the cost of servicing mortgages and other loans, and help financial firms make money, there are a great many people who want lower rates. Presidents seeking re-election will always bang the drum for lower rates, and they will pressure the Fed to help out. On their part, Fed policymakers naturally want to be seen as the good guys who help the economy, not the tight-fisted scrooges who push it into recession. The members of society who would favor higher rates, most notably the savers, have no well-organized interest group. Their voices are never heard. As a result, there is a consistent bias towards holding rates too low rather than too high. Remember, low rates encourage borrowing and discourage savings. It's not surprisingly, the United States has been transformed from a nation of savers to a nation of borrowers. In addition, rates that are too low relative to the supply of savings send false signals to borrowers about the health of the economy and the viability of investments. Since consumption has not really been deferred to the future, which would be the case had interest rates fallen due to market forces, capital investments intended to satisfy future consumption will be much less likely to succeed. The result is phony booms followed by spectacular busts, such as those just experienced in stocks and real estate.